theyeshiva.net. Let me begin with a story that was shared by the former chief rabbi of Israel, chief rabbi of Netanya, then chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, then the Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Israel for many years, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau. And he said, you know, after communism fell and the gates of the Soviet Union were opened, finally the Iron Curtain was removed and Jews and others can emigrate from the former Soviet Union to whichever country they wished. You remember maybe in 1990, there was mass emigration to Israel. I think close to one million or more of Jews and others from Russia came to Israel. And because they were living under the tyranny of the communist regime for 70 years, in which there was a strategic and successful attempt to uproot every last vestige of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism, of Jewish practice, of Jewish religion, naturally, there was a question about many people whether they were Jewish or not. You know, perhaps they intermarried, perhaps their you know, grandparents were Jewish, but they were not Jewish. So the courts, the rabbinic courts in Israel then, were very involved with trying to help determine who is a Jew. Just because you came out of Russia and you called yourself a Jew, did it mean that you were actually a Jew? And this was obviously important. Rabbi Lau says that one day he was sitting in the Besden, he was sitting in the courtroom, and a fellow came in, 42 years old, a Jew who grew up in Russia in the Soviet Union, identified himself as a Jew, made aliyah to Israel, and now he wanted, so to speak, to be endorsed and approved and receive a certificate that he is indeed a Yehudi, a Jew. So you had to bring some evidence. This man had two witnesses. The first witness was an elderly Jew who also came from Russia, and he said that he was at his bris. He was at his circumcision 42 years earlier when this boy was born. The second witness was a Chabad Chassid. And the Chabad Chassid shared the following story. Not about him, but about his mother. He knew his mother for many years, and this is what he told Rabbi Lau. She was a director of a hospital. Because she was director of a hospital, I don't have to tell you, maybe I do have to tell you, but the, the, the economic conditions in the Soviet Union for most people was horrible. You had to wait online for hours and hours to be able to get some food, never mind to be able to get some clothes. It was a desperate situation, but they were just used to it. Everybody had a television. Even before Americans had televisions, everybody in the Soviet Union had a television because this was sponsored by the state because it was their biggest tool for propaganda. This was their, their instrument to be able to indoctrinate and, indoctrinate and feed all their information to the populace. But in terms of all other needs... It was, there was a tremendous shortage. You had to wait for hours and hours online. And therefore, the black market was very, very alive and well in the Soviet Union. A lot of things you couldn't even get on the regular market. You had to only get it in illegal ways through the black market. So this Chabad Chosset tells Rabbi Lau that this man's mother had a prominent position in a hospital. She was director of a hospital, an administrator, a director. Because of that she was privy to get two cigarettes a day. This was a time when cigarettes in Russia were extremely, extremely precious. Most people smoked. They, I guess, didn't know about the you know, negative effects, whatever the case is, but this was a tremendous you know, stress release for them. But to get a cigarette was very, very difficult. And this woman was privy to get two cigarettes a day. 
One cigarette, she would smoke. Another one, she would hide in a special box, in a special container under her bed. Nobody should find it. And this Chabad Chosset says, every year, Purim time, she would come to me with a box that contained 365 cigarettes. Because every single day she got two and she put one away. And she would say to me, and now get me the matzah. And I would take the cigarettes, sell them on the black market, get flour, and bake her a certain amount of matzah so she would have matzah for Pesach. And he tells Rabbi Lau, you know, to get an extra cigarette in Russia was very, very precious. But she put it away every single day so she should be able to eat matzah on Pesach. Rabbi Lau was extremely moved by the story. And he asked this fellow, is your mother still alive? He said, yeah, she's living in, the, in Russia. He said, can I speak to her? And of course, they arranged a telephone call. And Rabbi Lau, from his office in Tel Aviv, or in Jerusalem, where he was, probably Jerusalem, calls this woman. And she gets on the phone, and he starts talking to her, and she confirms the entire story. And then he says to her, you know the difference between you and I? I observe the Seder night once a year. You observe the Seder 365 days out of the year. Every single day, when you put away that cigarette, you were observing the Seder and celebrating Pesach. And then I understood. The Pasuk says, the Torah says, You should remember the day that you left Egypt. You should remember it not only on the day that you left Egypt, which is Passover, but you should recall it every single day of your life. And that's the Jewish law. We mention and we remember and we recall the experience of the exodus of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, the experience of our freedom, liberty, emancipation, every single day, in fact, by day and by night. As we explain in the Haggadah, in the beginning of the Haggadah, why we do it, by day and by night. So here's a woman who didn't only mention it verbally. Rabbi Lau said, you actually experience Pesach every single day of the year and experience it through a serious commitment and sacrifice by putting away that cigarette so she should be able to have matzah for Pesach. I say this because it's a beautiful and moving story, but I think it also gives us perspective when we think today about our own Zdarim in a different climate, in a different environment, under different circumstances, but with our own unique set of challenges. And that's what we're going to discuss today. The fact is that many people experience a lot of anxiety on Passover. And especially in the night of the Seder, that anxiety doubles, triples, sometimes quadruples, or even more. There's a lot of anxiety of what it's supposed to look like. People feel it wasn't good enough, it's not good enough, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm not in the mood, why am I not feeling all the light, all the energy, all the electricity, all the holiness, all the godliness, and a lot of other sources of anxiety that people have, it triggers and brings up a lot of memories, repressed memories or non-repressed memories, conscious stuff, unconscious stuff. Not everybody... Some people enjoy it immensely, but for many people it's a difficult night. They have shared it with me, they continue to share it with me or personally or via email. And that's what I want to discuss with you this evening. Not this evening, I'm already at the Seder night this morning. For some of you I see it's already evening, but here it's still Tuesday morning. And today's class is dedicated by a dear friend, Chanazel Dominkowitz, in loving memory of her father, Rebavram Aaron. 
Rabbi Shnei Zaman Yisachar Getzel Halevi Rabashkin, who passed away one year ago on the 9th of Nisan. His Yartzet was celebrated and commemorated yesterday. One of the great hearts of Jewish community of Brooklyn, of Borough Park, of Avram Aaron Rabashkin, father also of our friend Rabshal Mardachai and the famous Rabashkin family and beautiful family and dynasty in honor of his first yard site, died a year ago from the coronavirus, just a few days before Pesach. May he be a source of everlasting blessing and inspiration to you, Chana Zelda, and to your uh, your mother, Larichis Yama Vashanam Taivas, and to the entire family, health, happiness, prosperity. Av, Achva, Shalom, and Reyes, and a lot of Nachas. Also dedicated by a very dear friend, the leader of the Neve institutions in Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi David Refson Shlita. Thank you so, so much for your continuous friendship and dedication to God's children and the type of leadership which is not uh, directed by a tunnel vision, but rather broad and expansive, encompassing the full rainbow of Kalal Yisrael and the full richness of Teres Yisrael and Elikei Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael. It's been a year for everybody. It's been an intense year for everybody, no question. Everybody's going through something. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us have lost friends, relatives. Some of us have struggled with illness. Some of us have struggled financially. Some of us have struggled with ourselves, with our children, with our families. Some of us have struggled mentally, psychologically, spiritually. It's a difficult time for many people. It's a time for deep compassion and deep love and deep connection and reaching out. And uh, it's been a year. (laughs) It's been a full year. Just remember this time last year. It was extremely intense. And, you know, the results are still here and the future is still not completely certain. What can I do? What can you do to be able to repair our sense of anxiety and stress when Pesach comes, when the Seder comes? That's the question I'm addressing today. And the answer I'm going to share with you today is actually a story. It's a long story. And it's a story recorded in a Hasidic discourse, which you have on your source sheets. If you open your source sheets, if you go to theyeshiva.net, that's T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A dot net. And you'll see women's class, why do we have anxiety at the Pesach Seder and how to fix it. And you'll see under the video, there's something called download. You can download the source sheets or on top is view source sheets. You can bring them up on the screen. You can make it larger. You could print it out. You could put it on whatever you want. Below you have download. On top you have view. This, let me tell you what we're going to be studying today. We're going to be studying what's called a mimer. A mimer means a Hasidic discourse a Hasidic presentation that was shared by the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, known as the Rebbe Rayatz, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. I'm privileged to carry his name. My name is Yosef Yitzchak, which is YY, Joseph Isaac. And the Rebbe Rayatz was the sixth Rebbe in the dynasty of the seven Chabad Rebbes, which begins with the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya and the Shulchan Aruch Harav, who passed away in 1812. He was the founder of Chabad. He was a student of the Magad of Mizrich, who was the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the, founder of the Hasidic movement. And the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman, called, him, called the Baal Shem Tov the Zayd, spiritual grandfather, and the Magad, the Tate, spiritual father. His grandson, his daughter's son, was the, the Tzemach Tzedek, and the Tzemach Tzedek's great-grandson, was the Rebbe Rayatz Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak. 
He's, some people call him the, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, or the Rebbe Rayatz, Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak. He was born in the year Tofresh Mem, which means 1880. He lived for 69 years. He passed, passed away Tofshin Yud, 1950, on the 10th of Shvat Yud Shvat. He was born in Lubavitch, which is a little town in Belarus. But throughout of his life, he relocated. His father fled the Germans during the First World War, and they moved to Rostov on the Dan River. And then a few years later, he relocated to Leningrad, which used to be called Petersburg. The Bolsheviks changed the name to Leningrad. He was arrested, and after his arrest, he ultimately left Russia. He moved to Latvia, then he moved to Warsaw, then he moved to Otsvotsk, which is a suburb. A rush of Warsaw, then he went back to Warsaw after the war broke out. He escaped from the Nazis and arrived in the United States in March 1940, Tess Adder And he lived here in New York for 10 years. His Hasidim bought the home, the famous home, 770 Eastern Parkway, Brooklyn, New York, Crown Heights, where the Rebbe lived for 10 years until he passed away Shabbos morning, Parshas Boy, Yud Shema, Yud, 1950. And he's interred in the Montefiore Cemetery in Queens. He was succeeded by his son-in-law, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, known as the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was the seventh Rebbe in the Chabad dynasty. And if you go to the oil, to the resting place, you'll see that the Rebbe and his father-in-law are there side by side. You have Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, the Rebbe Rayatz, and near him, his son-in-law, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzchak, was an extraordinary figure. Um, I spoke about him a few times with you. One of the unique features was he was one of the last standing Jewish leaders in Russia that remained there under the communist tyranny. The Bolsheviks and the Evsektsia, the Jewish part, the Jewish section of the Communist Party, uprooted Judaism almost completely. And all the rabbis and teachers either went underground or, or fled. And you're talking about the greatest, the Chofetz Chaim, Reb Moshe Feinstein. Ultimately, they were there, but in order to sustain uh, any vibrant Judaism, you couldn't, you couldn't do it. And the Rebbe remained, and he sent shluchim, he sent emissaries throughout the Soviet Union, one of them was my grandfather, to hold up Yiddishkeit under impossible circumstances. The Rebbe built 600 underground schools. 600 underground schools. Most of them were closed down, of course, by the communists. Until he was arrested, he was sentenced to death, and then he was sentenced to 10 years in exile. It gives you a little bit of an appreciation of the magnitude, the stature of this person. He would teach Maimarim, which are discourses, Hasidic discourses, and they're published in a set of Sefer Maimarim. When he came to America, he published uh, periodically Maimarim in Yiddish. He would say, and then write down and, and publish discourses, and he did them in Yiddish. Usually they're done in Hebrew. He did them in Yiddish because most of, much of the population understood Yiddish, and he wanted that these ideas should be able to reach them in their native languages. A lot of Jews didn't know Hebrew, but they came from Eastern Europe, and they all knew Yiddish. So these Maimarim were published in Yiddish, and later they were compiled into a book called Sefer HaMaimarim Yiddish, from the previous, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe Rebbe The last discourse of the book begins on the Pasuk, Shalom Rav Lo'eavei Seresechevein Lamei Mechshon. Great peace to those who love your Torah, who do not stumble. And in that Mimer, the last one of this book, which you have here in your source sheet, and we posted it both in Yiddish and then in Hebrew, because I know not everybody understands Yiddish. So I wanted to post the original in Yiddish, because you may appreciate that. But if not, if you understand Hebrew, we found the Hebrew translation, and, and it's posted as well in the source sheets. In this discourse, he shares a story. 
And I'm thankful to a friend, Reb Fitcher Rabin, who pointed, who pointed me to the story because I wasn't aware of it. So thank you very much. And it really, I think, is so powerful because it teaches us that a lot of the struggles you know, we're dealing with today didn't begin today. They may be manifested in different ways, but they began a long time ago. And this is a story about the Holy Bar and about two people running their Seder on Pesach night with completely different perspectives, different attitudes, different dispositions, and there was a completely different vibe in the home and what the Bar had to say about it. That's the story I'm going to share with you, and I hope this will give us all some guidance, some direction, some meaningful inspiration, and set us on the right track of when we are thinking and experiencing these types of dilemmas and questions. It's a long story, so I'm not going to read the whole story. You could read it inside. That's your homework. But I'm going to share the first part of the story verbally, and then there's a section that I want to read with you inside, and I'm going to translate so everybody will be able to understand, even if you don't understand Yiddish. The story begins with the fact that the Baal Shem Tev, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tev, the Holy Baal Shem Tev, which means the master of a good name, you know, I like my history. So he was born in 1698. <laughs> he passed away in 1760. He was born Chai Elul, the 18th of Elul, 1698, which is Hey Alafim Tof Nun Ches. They call it Nachas, the year of Nachas. The year of Nachas. It was really a year of Nachas with the Baal Tov came into the world then. And he passed away Shvuas. Tof Kuf Chaf, 1760. He's, of course, buried in Mezhebush, which is a little city in Ukraine. Some of you have been there. I've had the schools to be there a few times. And then he was succeeded by the Rebbe Rebbe, Rebbe Doiv Ber, the Maggid of Mizrich, who took over the leadership of Hasidus one year after the Baal Shem Tov's passing. For one year was the Baal Shem Tov's son, Reb Tzvi, and the next Shavu was he gave it over to Rebbe, Rabbeinu Doiv Ber, the Maggid of Mizrich. So this Maimah says that the Baal Shem Tov had different types of students. The Baal Shem Tov had students who were Go'inei Olam. They were great, great Talmidei Chachamim. They were rabbis of great cities. You had people like the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, Rabbi Yosef HaKoyen Katz of Polna. He was a big rav. People like Rabbi Chaim HaKoyen Rappaport. Yeah. People like Taka, like, uh, like uh, somebody, who's going, somebody who's going to describe here. The Maggid of Mizrich himself was a Ga'an If you go through the list, we know many of the Talmidim of the, of the Baal Shem Tev. Many of them were great, great geniuses, great scholars in Halacha, they were rabbis of big cities. Some of them headed yeshivas. And they were close. They became Talmidim or Hasidim of the Baal Shem Tov. That was one group. But the Baal Shem Tov also had many disciples or many Hasidim, many Mekushar, many people who were connected to him, who you could, who, who would call Pashtayidin. Pashtayidin means simple Jews. Many of them were not very literate. Some of them could barely read or understand. They worked hard. And the Baal Shem Tov spoke to their soul. Baal Shem Tov gave them a new passion, a new fire, a new love. Because, of course, one of the major ideas of the Baal Shem Tov is that don't get stuck only in the rituals of Yiddishkeit and in the scholarship of Judaism. One has to be able to appreciate the soul of Yiddishkeit. And the first way, and the way to do that is to appreciate your own soul, your own neshama. The Baal Shem Tov really helped people identify their own inner infinite greatness, how close they were to infinity. How close they were to Hashem, how much Hashem loves them. This was, these were major ideas that he taught, and therefore he attracted all of these different types of students. Says the Baal Shem Tev, says the Maimer, says the Rebbe, 
One of the students of the Baal Shem Tov was a Jew who lived in Brod. Brod was a very famous city, a very famous Jewish community. His name was Reb Nossen, Leivent Handler. Leivent in Yiddish is linen. Handler is, he was a merchant. He handled, like handled as a handler, a handler. He was called Reb Nossen, Leivent Handler, because he dealt with linen. This was his uh, source of revenue. Very successful. Extremely successful. He was wealthy and affluent. He did well. He was also a Talmud Chacham, which means he was a great Torah scholar. And every single day, whenever he had free time from his business, especially at night when the store was closed, he would sit and learn for hours with great hasmada, with great dedication and with great diligence. But, the Mimer continues, when it came to Midas, when it came to his own inner working on himself, his emotions, his experiences, his relationships with himself and with other people, he says in a nice way, he says, which means it was not very worked out. His main focus was to learn and learn and learn and learn more and to observe mitzvahs with hidur, which means to observe mitzvahs in the most perfected way. He also followed everything that it says in the Torah. He was a, a, a religious Jew, a God-fearing Jew. But in terms of working on himself, refining his character, tuning in to what is going on inside of him, and becoming the true person that he's capable of becoming, this was not his focus. The Baal Shem Tev told him a few times and made him aware of how important it is to work on your midas, to work on your interactions with people, your empathy, your sense of connection. And this is a major part of Avodah Hashem, of serving God. But Reb Nossin Leiventandli said, He had his own way of doing things, and that's what... Uh, he came to the Baal Shem Tev, but, you know, he... He ultimately remained in his comfort zone. Years passed. Reb Nossin had children. The children grow, grew up. He educated them well. He mentored them. They were Lamdim. They were Talmud Chachamim. They were all involved in learning. And they followed the path that their father has created. The Baal Shem Tev had another Jew who was connected to him. He was a Makusher to him. He was a Pasha to him. He was a simple Jew. His name was Avraham Belish Tzenitzer because he came from a town that was called Belish Tsenets. It was a little dwarf, a little town in the Ukraine, apparently in the Ukraine. So they called him Reb Avram Belish Tsenetzer, just like they called the first person Leivendhandler, Reb Nossin Leivendhand, because of his business, he came from Belish Tsenets. They called him Reb Avram Belish Tsenetzer. He says, His learning abilities were very impoverished. In fact, he couldn't understand Hebrew. So his entire uh, source of information were only books that were printed in the Yiddish language. And there weren't many books in the Yiddish language. And even that was not easy for him to understand. So he could daven, he can read Hebrew, but he didn't understand the words. So he would daven, he wouldn't understand the Pirish Amidlis, very few words he understood. He would read Chumash, or say Tehillim, but he didn't understand the words, only that which was translated in Yiddish. But he was a balavoida. He always tried to work on himself. He always tried to become a better person, he always tried to be self-aware, to refine his character. And he says, whenever it came to something of serving Hashem or doing a mitzvah, he did it with a tremendous inner commitment and a simcha joy. And he was self-aware. He was extremely self-aware, always trying to refine his character. One day, says the Maimer, the story continues, it was a Shabbos. And both of these people happened to come to the Baal Shem Tev. 
Reb Nosson Leiventhendler came to the Moshe Amtor for Shabbos. And now Reb Avram Belish Tzenitzer came to the Moshe Amtor for Shabbos. That Shabbos, the Moshe Amtor used to teach a lot. I don't know if you know, the Moshe Amtor would give a daily shear to his close students in Gemara, Rashi, Toysvis, and Rishonim. That was a very, very deep shear. Moshe Amtor himself was a huge gone. But the Moshe Amtor said different types of Torah, different types of teachings. That Shabbos, over Shabbos, the Baal Shem Tev said a Torah on a verse in Yeshaya. One of our greatest prophets is Yeshaya Hanavi. And the first chapter of Yeshaya, which we read in the Haftarah of Shabbos Chazayin, before Tishavah, it's a very sharp Haftarah. And Yeshaya Hanavi says, and I quote, and I translate. By the way, I am now in the second chapter of the Maimer. If you're in your source sheets, it's page 216. Till now I was doing the end of 2.15 and the top of 2.16. Now I'm on the bottom of 2.16. I'm not reading inside. I'm just giving you a digest of the story that's being recorded here. But if you want to follow inside, you could follow inside. The Navi Yeshaya says, God says, U'befarischem kapechem alayim einaimikem. Gam kitarbu yideichem damim aleyu. Literally, when you spread out your hands... In prayer, it just says, when you spread out your hands, which the commentators, Rashi and others say, means in prayer, God says, I will not look at you. I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you increase in davening, I'm not listening because your hands are filled with blood. Literally, the prophet, Yeshaya, is chastising the Jewish people. The fact that you learn a lot, the fact that you daven a lot, the fact that you spread out your hands to me, and you increase in your tefillah, God says, but if your hands are filled with blood, if there's violence in your communities, if there's bigotry, if there's racism, if there's a lack of respect, if there's narcissism, if there's selfishness, if you're killing people, hurting people, robbing people, embarrassing people, tormenting people, abusing people, it's sickening. God says, I don't need your religiosity. I'm not interested in your prayers. I'm not interested in your learning. And this is a major theme of Yeshaya Hanavi. We also say in the Haftarah of Yom Kippur, Yeshaya Hanavi says, God says, you think I need your sacrifices? You think I need your offerings? You think when you fast and bring animals, that's what's going to make it a special day? That's not what's going to make it a special day. A special day is remove the shackles of those who are being tormented and abused, those who have been imprisoned physically or emotionally. Take care of the orphans, take care of the widows, Take care of people who have been hurt. That's the most important thing. Social justice, to be able to be there for people who are suffering and not to allow criminals and abusers of all types to get away with murder. There's a lot to say about this, as you know. This is the main thrust of this verse as well. Even as you spread out your hands, I'm not going to look at you. Even if you increase in davening, I'm not going to listen. Because your hands are filled with blood. Comes the Baal Shem and he adds a deeper interpretation to this Pasuk, which was the style of the Baal Shem Tev. Chesidus generally is known as Pnimiyas HaTayra, part of Pnimiyas Pnimi HaTayra means the inner core of Torah, which basically reveals deeper layers and dimensions in every aspect of Torah or mitzvahs that you're learning and observing. So the Baal Shem Tev explained that there's two ways of serving God. One is called Avaydas HaMayach, one is called Avaydas HaLev, there's working with your mind and there's working with your heart. There's the avoid of Torah, there's the avoid of tefillah, there's the avoid of learning, there's the avoid of davening, which represents two modes of connection with Hashem. And when somebody learns and when somebody davens, and they're sincere people, 
They also give tzedakah. Because much of Torah, much of Tefillah is about helping somebody else. Rabbi Kiva says, loving somebody is a great principle of Torah. And Hillel says, the whole Torah is about not to be done, not to do to somebody else what you don't want to be done to you. Shabbos, the Flamad Aleph. And that's the idea. What does he say? You spread out your hands. So the Bashan says, it doesn't only mean you spread out your hands to Davin. It also means you spread out your hands because you're giving money to people who are destitute. You spread out your hands in generosity, in benevolence. You spread out your hands, you're not just keeping things for yourself. You're actually giving tzedakah and maybe you're doing it with a sense of expansiveness. You're spreading your hands, you're not being stingy. You're giving handsomely and generously. But nonetheless, he says your hands are still filled with blood. Why are they filled with blood? Because even if I may be doing the right thing, I may be giving you money, What's missing is the empathy. I'm not experiencing your pain. I'm not interested in you. I'm not attentive to you. I'm still completely in my own world. The Basham is describing somebody who may, on paper, you have a checklist. You're giving tzedakah, you're saying the right things, which is wonderful, which is good. But nonetheless, the Navi says, God wants you should feel another person. I could be saying the right thing, I could be doing the right thing, but am I experiencing the other person? Am I really connecting emotionally? Do I even know how to do that? It takes time. It takes mental space. It's not just about saying the right things and doing the right things, which is, of course, the baseline. But can I really experience you? Can I really feel your heartbeat? Can I really connect to where you are? Can our hearts connect? And that's the challenge the Navi is addressing. You may spread out your hands. You may be davening a lot. You may be doing the right things, but still, Yedechem Dame Maleyu. Because you're not feeling what the other person is going through. You just don't feel them. You're in your own comfort zone. You're in your own spiritual world. But you have a checklist. God wants you to give tzedakah. You give tzedakah. God wants you to say a nice thing. You'll say a nice thing. You'll say thank you. You'll say good morning. You're not embarrassing anybody. It's wonderful. But it's about the checklist. You checked off the list. What's missing is the heartbeat. The neshama. The experience. The emotional bonding. The connection. The attachment as they call it today. You're having an attachment disorder. You may never, you may, you may not even be aware of it. This was his message. The way that Baal Tov put it is, a person could give a poor person. A poor person means physically or spiritually. A poor person doesn't necessarily mean you need money. It could be you need something else. I may give him a donation with a broad hand. But it's felt their hergish of But I don't know how to feel you. I just don't. That's a form of dumim aleyu. My hands are filled with this blood here. And God says, therefore, it's hard for me to look at it. This is avoid, the real avoid, this means connecting to Hashem. Connecting to Hashem really means connecting to the core of life. Connecting to the core of life means connecting to the oneness of life. It means being fully present in the moment and being fully present with people and being fully present with God and being fully present with yourself. And that means really connecting to a person. So God says, even when you're doing all this, I can't see it and I can't hear it because it's not real connection. It's not real avayda. And then, and then, the Baal Shem Tov says, the Pasa continues, Yideichem damim maleyu. Your hands are filled with blood. He said, what does it mean your hands are filled with blood? He says, even though these hands are giving, even your midas toivas, ayere midas, afilu the midas toivas, ayere midas 
sometimes even my midas toivus, he says, are really blemished. Because they're not refined midistivus. I just happen to be a nice guy, but it, again, it's about my checklist. It's about me fulfilling my obligation. I'm a good person. I'm going to get Elam Haba. I'm not going to be punished. I'm doing everything right. But the connection is not there. It's hard to really connect. So he says, even your midistivus are brute. They're coarse. They're unrefined. This is sharp stuff. There's an expression in Gemara called gasus haruach. Gasus Haruach literally means arrogance. Gas Ruach. The Balatanya says Gasus Haruach means Deruchnius is gas. Gas is coarse. Gasus Haruach. My Ruchnius is gas. Even my spirituality is coarse. What do you mean? Sometimes my spirituality could be coarse. It's unrefined. It's missing Bittel. It's missing Alekus. It's missing the Enoid Molvada. I, I do everything again. <laughs> Don't minimize it. It's much better than other situations when people are, are acting and behaving obnoxiously and narcissistically. These are midas toivas. You know, I'm giving you a smile and I'll do you a favor and I'll give tzedakah and I'll say the right thing. You know, and I'll... But what's missing is I didn't really go out of myself. I didn't really go out of my comfort zone, my insecurities. I haven't emancipated myself from my own toxicity to really, really, really Tune into you. Just tune into you. It's not about me doing the right thing. This is even midas taivas. can also be gas. This is the Torah the Baal Shem Tov taught on Shabbos. Reb Nossin Leiventhandler was there. Reb Avram Belish Tzenitzer was there. They both go home, the Baal Shem Tov said, the, the Maimer says. And what happens? Reb Nossin, who was a Talmud Chacham, he meditated. He thought about what the Basham Tev said, and his focus was how the Basham spoke about Avoidas Hamoyach, how you serve Hashem with your brain, how you serve Hashem with your heart. This was the focus of Reb Nassim. He was analyzing the Torah of the Basham Tev. Reb Avram, Senitzer, he didn't even understand everything the Basham Tev said. But those words that he got, wow, they penetrated right to his core. <laughs> they got right into him. And he decided that at that moment, he has to reinvent himself. And even though he was a person who was self-aware, and he worked on himself, and he refined himself, but when he heard those words, Yideichem damim aleyu, that when a person cannot really experience the pain of another person, so even if you're giving them, and you're giving them with expansiveness, it's still called shvichis damim, it's still called, my hands are bloody. They did not let him rest. And when he came home, he really, he really opened himself up to a much deeper life, to much deeper relationships, to much deeper connections. And he said, as his life progressed, is there altsmergestigen in sein avoide? He was steiging, he was growing deeper in his avoides hamidos, in his inner personal work. We now come to the actual punchline of the story, which happens on Pesach at the Seder. And this is chapter 3 of the Maimer. And here I'm going to read inside, because I want you to get all the details. Till now I gave a general summation. Page 217 in your source sheets. Please follow me. I'm going to read it in original in Yiddish. As I said, you have also on your text the Hebrew version, which you could read. But I'm now going to do the Yiddish one, because that's the original Maimer of the Rebbe Rayatz. Gimel, page 217. Pesach Tzum Seder. 
Wenn der Baal Shem Tov ist gesessen mit seinen Talmidim beim Tisch, beim Seder-Tisch, ist er gewöhnt sehr aufgelegt. Pesach hat der Seder. Some of the students of the Baal Shem Tov came to be, him, came to be with him on Pesach. And the system was that they would spend the meals with him, with the Baal Shem Tov and his wife and his family. The Baal Shem Tov had two children. Baal Shem Tov had a, uh, a daughter, Adl, and a son, Reb Tzvi. So the Talmidim would spend Yom Tov with the Baal Shem Tov. Reb Nossin and Reb Avram did not come. Reb Nossin was home in Brod, and Reb Avram was home in Belishtenitz. But uh, the other students were there, and they come Pesach, and it's by the Seder. The Baal Shem Tov is sitting by the table, and he's very happy. Uvgelecht means he is in a very serene and tranquil, inspired and uplifting mood and spirit. And the Baal Shem Tov is teaching his students, some of them geniuses, great scholars, they should appreciate the tremendous nachas ruach, the tremendous pleasure and delight and ecstasy that Hashem has from the service of Hashem of simple Jews who are just there sincerely, attentively, with their heart and soul, even relative to the service of people who are great in wisdom and great in scholarship and have great accomplishments in davening or learning. You remember how in camp, we would sometimes, you know, he had a bunk, everybody put their hands on the shoulders of their friends, right? So we were all connected in this circle. Everybody had their hands, and usually you would sing these camp songs. So the Baal Shem Tov says, he tells to all of his students, he wants they should all close their eyes, and everybody should place his right arm on the shoulder of the person sitting near him, and the left arm, the left hand on the shoulder of the person sitting near him. The Baal Shem Tov alayna tarluf gelegt zayna hentev da axlin von de tzweitz talmidim lachazanin gesessin von zayna beide zaiten und hat genommen singen anigen. The Baal Shem Tov himself, sitting at the head table, he takes both of his holy arms and he places them on the shoulders of the two students who are sitting on his two sides, to his right and to his left. So now they're all connected by virtue of their hands, interlacing them and interconnecting them, and the Baal Shem Tov begins to sing a melody. And remember, all their eyes are closed, and they're all connected to the Baal Shem Tov, and they're all singing a nigan directed by the Baal Shem Tov, who began this. And at that moment, the doors of perception are cleansed, and they are allowed to see reality on a deeper level. You know, the soul has infinite vision. The soul could see from one end of the world to the other end of the world because the vision of the soul is not hindered, it's not mitigated by the unique properties and containers of the retina. So when the soul comes into the body and we're blessed with eye vision, we could see, but our seeing, our vision, our eyesight is limited. Hopefully our vision is not as limited. Helen Keller said the only thing that's worse than not having eyesight is lacking vision. But the soul itself is capable of seeing much more. In fact, the Gemara is the Chazal tell us that the light that God created the first day, it says the first day Hashem said, let there be light. That light you could see to the other end of the world. But then he hid that light. It says it was too, too intense. He hid that light. And in the future it's going to be used. But those who live in the future, they can use that light today. So the Baal Shem Tov had access to that light. The Zoya says, Hashem hid it in the Torah. If you know how to read the Torah, you can have access to that light. And it allows you to see 
to see reality on a diff- to see a different layer of reality and to be able to see distances that we usually don't see. The Baal Shem Tov gave them that gift at that moment. They went into that state of consciousness where the doors of their perception were cleansed, and this is what happens. Suddenly, they have a vision. They see this man, Rabavram Belishtenitzer, sitting at the Seder table with his wife and his children in their little town called Belishtenitz. They're sitting at the Seder. They live in a small home. He's a poor man. They live in a small room. The, the Seder is in a small room. On the table, there's a few earthenware vessels, clay cheres, very cheap, you know, earthenware vessels. There's no you know, fancy, beautiful, uh, exquisite pieces of furniture or, or, or cutlery on the table or vessels on the table. It's laymana, laymana earthenware. And he didn't even have enough money to be able to have many candles. So they had a little oil that he can afford to have some candles. Obviously, he light yumped of candles, so his wife lit candles. So there was a little, a little, some, 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 some fire on the table from the little oil that he had. Rebavram is sitting with his family. And they're sitting with tremendous joy. And they're celebrating the Seder. So they're seeing a little room, physically not very comfortable, economically not very uh, prosperous, but emotionally there's a beautiful spirit. There's just a beautiful ambiance. There's simcha There's a lot of joy. Everybody is happy to be there. This vision continues. Their eyes now travel to Broad, where the Bnosan Leiventhandler, the successful linen merchant, is also sitting Seder night with his family in his house in Alichtik in Grosen Cheder. He has a big house, it's a huge dining room, it's bright, it's luminescent, a lot of candles everywhere. By Atish Great Metkoltov. And the table doesn't just have a little oil and a few earthenware vessels that are mostly empty. The table is filled and saturated with everything you can ask for. How do I translate this? Everybody's ungeblosen. How do I say ungeblosen in Yiddish? Everybody is angry. Everybody's upset. Ungeblosen literally means. Angablazin uh, upon him is like an inflated face, you know, when you're like very stern and angry and upset and depressed and melancholy and anxious. Everybody is upset. Everybody is bragus. They're not happy with each other. There's just what you would call a negative vibe, a toxic atmosphere in the home. Everybody's upset at each other. Nobody's happy. Physically, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful room. It's a beautiful table. It's light. It's bright. It's luminescent. You can't ask for anything more. But emotionally, they're miserable. They're miserable with themselves. They're miserable with each other. At some point, the Baal Shem Tev removes his hands, his holy hands from these two students, and he stops singing the song. And then he tells everybody to open their eyes and come back. So the Baal Shem Tov really took them on a journey through his music, through his soul, through his depth, through his consciousness. He took them on a journey 
And now it was time to come back. You know, when you say, okay, come back, open your eyes, take a deep breath. And the Baal Shem Tov says to them, here you see the difference between a Jew who's self-aware, a Jew who works on himself or herself, somebody who is not stuck in their comfort zones, not stuck in their toxicity, but operates from a place of expansiveness, operates from a place of deep emotional, psychological, spiritual awareness. In Yiddish it's called Erarbet Metzich. Somebody who really, I, I challenge myself, I open myself up to, to higher reality, to a deeper reality. There's a humility in me. I'm ready to be vulnerable. I'm ready for real self-transformation. There's authenticity. Nothing replaces authenticity. Nothing replaces somebody who really works on themselves. And that doesn't, doesn't mean work on themselves that all day I'm busy thinking about me and I'm self-conscious. That's not called working on myself. That means I'm getting more stuck in myself. It means working to be able to liberate myself from my self-consciousness, to be able to really be in the moment, to really be able to connect to the opportunity that exists right now, to be able to emancipate myself from my self-consciousness and for my stress, to be able to be present, to show up for the people who are in my life right now, to be able to really connect to my inner soul, to be able to connect to God, without expectations of what it's supposed to look like, but to really tune into the opportunity, to the gift of this moment. So he says, even though you have a person there, he's not a scholar, he doesn't know a lot, he doesn't have a lot of vertlach for the Seder, he didn't purchase 40 Haggadahs before Pesach in the store or online, and he could preach for seven hours about every type of pshat and vart and remez and grush and sod and geshmak ideas and gedorim and chalois and their hairs and mahalachs of the Seder. The guy doesn't even understand Hebrew, he can barely read through the Haggadah. But because he works on himself, so the Baal Shem Tov said, in everything and in every moment, he sees the beauty, he sees the opportunity, he sees the opportunity to connect. He also appreciates every person where they are. He appreciates them, he can love people, he can respect them. And therefore, in all circumstances, he is a happy person, and he's in a good place. You want to be around him. And even though the table is empty, there's not enough food for the children and it's yamtiv. Is there sameach basimchas yamtiv? The joy is inside. He may be missing things. Some things may be difficult, but there's an inner simcha. Undas is toiv pas chareva v'shalvabo. That's what Shleim Melech says. Better dry bread, but there is peace there. There is serenity there. There is tranquility there, rather than bias mali zivcheriv. Than a home that's filled with meat and filled with abundance, but it's full of fighting, it's full of negativity, it's full of toxicity. Give me dry bread, but it should be shalvaba. There should be peace in the bread, there should be peace in the kitchen, there should be peace in the dining room. Then a house that has everything, but you don't want to walk in there. The vibe is nishkeshmak. He says, Then you have another person. 
And he works. He also, he's a good man. He's trying. He works with his brain. He works with his heart. He davens. He learns. Hagam does is a grace avayda. It's not, he's not lazy. Abaven has felt that Shlem was for middas toivas bepoil. But if he never learned how to really live a life of middas toivas, what does it mean a life of middas toivas? To know how to really connect. To know how to really connect to his spouse. To know how to really connect to his children. To know how to really connect to God. To know how to really connect to himself. To know how to really, really connect. He's not suffering from attachment disorder. There's real connection. Is does bias molezif chiriv. Could be a home that's filled with everything. But they're all ungeblazen. They're all ungestopped. They're all ungeblazen. They're, 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 they're not happy. And he continues. That's the meaning of the Pasuk. Shalom Rav there's tremendous peace for those who love your Torah. The Maimah then continues on to another theme and it reaches its conclusion, but this is the crux of the story about the Holy Balshamtov and his two students, Ibnas and Leiventhandler and Ibn Balitzanitzer. What does this tell us? What it tells us is when it comes to the Seder, I think the most important thing is not to live in the delusional world of expectations. I come with expectations, what it's supposed to look like, what my wife is supposed to look like, what I'm supposed to look like, what my kids are supposed to look like, what my grandkids are supposed to look like, what type of ambience there has to be. And I'm disappointed and I'm let down. I'm not there. They're not there. People are nervous. People are anxious. But friends... Learn from Rebav Ram Belish Tzenetzer. Learn what the Baal Shem Tev is saying. It's about where I am. Are you really at peace with yourself? Can you embrace reality? Can you just realize that the Seder is, is exactly the way it's supposed to be? Because if this is how it is, this is how it's supposed to be. God tells Moshe, the place where you're standing on is sacred. If this is the situation, this is exactly how it's supposed to be. This is where Hashem is. This is how we're going out of Mitzrayim. Can you tune in to this moment with serenity, without judgment? Don't judge yourself and don't judge everybody else. Just really tune in. And can I open my heart? And can I really love and connect to all the people that God has given me in my life without giving them names and without labeling the situation and without describing what my family is and what my family is not and what my children are and what my children are not and who my wife is and who she's not and who my husband is and who he's not and who I am and who I'm not. Let's go out of Mitzrayim. You know what Mitzrayim is? Mitzrayim is labels, names, descriptions. Those are all Mitzrayims. Those are all things that keep us confined and limited. We love labels. Can I go out of that? I don't have to give anything names and descriptions. That's what it means tuning on into God. God has no names. God has no names. Who's mean to tune into God? Tune into the fact there's no name for this reality. But I want to tune into the truth. I want you to hear what I'm saying because this is, this is so important in life. Tuning into Hashem every moment means tuning into a reality that is nameless. God doesn't have, God transcends names. All the names we give for Hashem are just individual ways of perceiving Him through a certain filter. 
That's why Moshe Hashem says, Anoichi Hashem We're learning in the Mimer in the morning. Anoichi Misha, Anoichi. I am who I am. I don't have a name. Could you not give your children names? Could you not give your family labels? Could you not give your Seder descriptions? Tune into God. Don't give it a name. There's no name. It is exactly what it is. It's a reflection of Hashem's infinity. He's here. Be here. Just connect. Open your heart to the people who are in your life. Everybody's on their own journey. Everybody's trying to live, live Mitzrayim. Let's be in a, in a more peaceful place. Now I know that it's easier said than done because there's a lot of triggers, a lot of things come up, a lot of thoughts, especially if that's why it's so important for me to be worked out. It's so important for me to open myself up to all of the type of help that I maybe need in order to be able to be in this real, real space of attachment, of connection. And this is the main teaching of the Baal Shem Tev that changed above Ram. My hands can be generous. I can be out there. But my hands are still are not giving the people what they really need. Because my heart is not there. My connection is not there. I can't just follow the rules. It's not about a checklist. It's about connection. It's about attachment. There's nothing that replaces that. When it says in the, at the Seder, teach your child, it's not a sermon. I'm not giving you a speech. My children don't need my speeches. I should tell that to myself, right? My children don't need my speeches. They need me. They need you. They need your soul. They need your, they need your heart. <sighs> Beautiful word of Rabbi Shalab Sosever. Beautiful word. Why is it called Pesach? Why is Pesach called Pesach? We all know Passover, because God passed over. What did he pass over? He passed over Jewish homes, right? It says in Parashas Boy in the Exodus. God says that night you're going to have, we're going to have the, the Makas Pcheris midnight, Vahiba Chatzia Laila midnight, every first male born in Egypt dies from a sudden pandemic, from a sudden plague, but I'm going to pass over a Pesach, I'm going to jump over, I'm going to leap over the Jewish homes. So when it comes to a Jewish home, God is going to, I'm going to jump. And that's why we have the name Pesach. It's a little strange, right? God jumping over homes, and that's the name of the holiday. And Rabbi Moshe Leib Sosavis said, the meaning of it is that when God comes to a Jewish home, and he's about to approach this Jewish home, you know what he does? He says, Ehebton springen und tanzen. Shem comes to a Jewish home, he starts jumping and dancing. You know, when you dance and you jump, you take leaps and you skip over. He's dancing. Can you do that? Can you look at everyone who's around your table and start dancing? These are the people God gave me in my life. They're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We're all on a journey. Can I really embrace them? Can I really connect them? Can I really just appreciate them? Appreciate them. Doesn't mean I agree with everything. It doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. I also don't make mistakes. But it does mean they're trying hard. They're on their journey. They're trying to figure things out. Dance. Appreciate them. Bond with them. Connect with them. And finally, a word of Reb Moshe of Kubrin, and then we open up to questions. The holy Reb Moshe of Kubrin, one of the great masters, he said, you know, I elaborated on this. We have on the yeshiva.net a lecture called Your Stress-Free Pesach Seder. You're stress-free. You could put it in the search or, on, or go to Pesach. You're stress-free Pesach Seder, which you may enjoy. 
You may want to, it's from a few years ago. You're, you may, you may enjoy it. So, there is, a, there is a, a, a vart of Reb Moshe of Kubrin. He said as follows, what do we tell the rebellious child? If you would have been there, you would have never been liberated. How is that going to help him? Can you tell me? <laughs> tell your child. If you would have been in Egypt, nobody would have taken you out. Great. Wonderful, mommy. Mommy, you're so brilliant. Hati, that was a stroke of genius telling me that if I would have been there, I would have never been liberated. Okay, thank you. In other words, I'm a lost case. Wonderful. Reb Moshe of Kabrin says, no, 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 open your hearts. He says, actually, you're telling him something so special. What is he saying about himself? He's saying, what's all these things that you're doing? They don't belong to me. I'm not part of this. He doesn't really see how he can be successful here. How he has something to contribute, how he has something to give. There's no happiness here for me. There's no future here for me. He doesn't feel connected to you. He doesn't feel attached. And that's why he has to justify it. So how do you justify it? It's hard for me to say I'm in pain because I'm not attached. So what do I say? I don't believe in God. It doesn't start with not believing in God. It starts with having attachment disorder and now I have to explain to myself who I am. So I say, oh, I don't believe in God. So I make a new life for myself. And you know what we tell this boy? We say, you know, if we would have had that attitude, we would have never, ever left Egypt. We would have looked at ourselves and said, we can't leave. We are destined to be slaves forever. But we knew that people are capable of transformation. People are capable of renewal. People are capable of reinventing ourselves. We're actually giving him the most powerful message. Understand that this attitude is what would have kept us enslaved forever becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you are probably right. Thank you very much. Let's open up the floor for some questions and dialogue. Question. Beautiful teachings. Thank you. Touching. You gave me a memory growing up by my parents and they used to use the word ungeblossom. I didn't know what it means. I guess it means a gloomy attitude. Yes. A gloomy, grouchy attitude. Ungeblazen is like you're saying, it's like I'm sitting and everybody sees that I don't want to be here. You know, I'm not interested in being here. I'm just angry. I'm upset. I may be doing all the right things, but I'm ungeblazen. You know, sometimes you come to a table and you feel it right away. You can have everything is perfect, but nobody wants to be there. There's just no flow of energy. Everybody is anxious. They may not even know why. And then sometimes you come to a table, there's nothing to eat. <laughs> but there's a good vibe. There's people there. You want to connect. You want to connect. Next question. Could you explain what God says when he comes to the house of a Jew? Yeah, Rabbi Shalab Sassiver says, God says that uh, God starts dancing and jumping here lives a Jew. Here lives a Jew. Here, that's what Pesach is. Pesach is that when you come into your home, or you even look at your home from the roof, you start dancing and jumping and making leaps and jumps, celebrating who lives here. And I think 
maybe that's the most important thing. That's why the name is Pesach. The most important thing is that we should be able to connect to those people in our lives. Can you also celebrate them? Just celebrate them. Celebrate them exactly, exactly where they are. And tune in and, and connect. And it's not about teaching and giving a sermon. It's about sharing your soul, sharing your love, sharing your deepest ideals, sharing your faith, sharing your vulnerability. Rabbi, how do you recommend helping everyone at the Seder to feel that they themselves have left Egypt? Oh, I can only do that if I work on myself leaving Egypt. You know, if I myself leave Egypt, then I exude that energy. You know when you're around a person who's free? You know when you're around a person who's not self-conscious? You feel it, right? You're around a person who has a halo of refinement, of light around them. It affects everybody. My wife told me this morning, she said, she said, if we're calm inside, everybody is changed in the house. And it's very true. If we are calm inside, everybody becomes calmer. Remember that kids pick up much more than you pick up, much more than I pick up. They pick up the subconscious, <laughs> right? They pick up the subconscious. I'm going to tell you something very, very deep. Why is it that we hide Dafikaiman? And who exposes it? Who finds Dafikaiman and brings it back to us? Our children. You know why? Because what we hide, they expose. Whatever you hide, whatever I hide, my child is going to find and bring it to the fore. For many generations, we have been hiding our Afikaimans very, very, very well. We have become professional Afikoman hiders. This has been going on for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. We have suppressed our feelings or we have suppressed our feelings, not because we're bad. It's called survival skills. It's called coping mechanism. Nobody was bad. Nobody. Everybody was just trying to survive and put one foot ahead of the other foot so we could continue our journey. And you know what? We're here. But there comes a point towards the end of the Seder when our children say, Tati and Mommy, it's time to face the Afikaiman. You know that section in the Seder is called Safun. You know what Safun means? Safun means hidden. So one of the great Hasidic masters, the Rebbe Maharaj, said that this is the time to bring out all the things that are hidden and deal with it. This is the only way we can leave Egypt. Afikaiman is Zechir Pesach. It's, it's commemorating the carbon Pesach, which represented the key staple food of the Seder, representing inner emancipation and liberation and freedom. And freedom, as you know, doesn't mean that the gates are open. I have to choose freedom. You can open the gates, but I refuse to leave. I have to choose freedom. I have to choose to go out. So my children show me the Afikaiman and say, Tata, Mama. If we all want to be free, let's not hide from our Afikaimans. Let's look at them. Let's see them. And let's use them as a springboard for awareness, for rejuvenation. And then together we could say, Lashana Haba, Birushalayim. Next question. Do you push your adult child to join the Seder when they have absolutely no interest? Listen. If you have a way of inviting them, but a way that they will not feel that you're judging, 
that you have an agenda, that you're trying to pressure them, which will probably make them say no. If you can have a genuine, genuine love for them in your heart, if you can be proud of who they are, even if there's disappointment and pain, if you can really understand that they have their own struggle, that they're trying very hard, that they're doing the best they can maybe, and that God loves them the way they are, even if he takes pride in what they couldn't be, can you really connect to them on that level and invite them from that space? Then yeah, push them and pressure them. If you're dealing with an adult child, I don't know how you're going to be successful. I mean, I don't, you, you know your relationship with them much better than I do. So you have to really judge that. But what I would suggest is that if you could come from a real place of connection, that may work. But remember, without expectations, they may say no. And you have to be fine with that. In other words, don't be nice on condition that they say yeah. And when they say no, it's like, you rotten apple, you rotten potato, why are you in my house? If that's what's going to happen, it's just going to make the relationship worse. And it's not good for you. It's not good for them. So no expectations. You just be nice, you be loving, you be connected. You connect to them to the best of your ability. Now, I know it's easier said than done. I know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here, you know, shooting out brilliant ideas, you know, from a detached place. I'm not, from, I'm not coming from a detached place at all. I know that this is difficult. But this is our work. This is what the Boshem teaches. I can't change other people. I have to change myself. We are so good in preaching to everybody else besides talking to ourselves. And sometimes I can't talk to myself. Let's face it, sometimes I have traumas and words are not going to help. You all know by now that the body keeps the score. You all know by, you all know by now that, you know, somatic therapy, they're not, they, you know, the, the leaders of somatic therapy says there's places that words will not achieve. Words will not achieve anything. There's trauma sitting in my body and in my amygdala, and I have to deal with it. So that's my own work, my own Yitzhiyah Spitzrayim, and I may be there at the Seder night, I may not be there at the Seder night, but at least I could be open to all these truths and, and try to operate from a much more expansive, godly place. Remember, God has no names. Don't give your children names. <laughs> that's what it means to be in touch with God. You don't give your kids names and labels. God has no labels. You allow infinity to play out, to play itself out. Next question. Beautiful comments. I'm on the chat comments now, and then we'll go to the website comments. I'm on the Zoom comments. I love, I like your insight about what we hide, our children reveal, it resonates. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not the only one it resonates for. <laughs> Next. I find expectations of myself and family easier to deal with in a healthy way. But I struggle more with expectations I feel from guests and community. Is that really just expectations for myself? Listen, it's very normal, you know. Ultimately, family is family. And, you know, we're not disowning family. It's all part of me. My, my husband, my children, my wife, it's, it's part of me. With strangers, with people in the community, it's a little different. But I think a similar principle applies. I can't only spread out my hands and give people food. I also want to be able to connect to people's hearts. And everybody's on their own journey. Um, again, I think 
boundaries are important. And if you have certain needs, you have to articulate them. You know, I don't think it's healthy to be able to give and give and give and give, and you're frustrated and you're resentful and nobody's giving back and you're just angry. I think it's important to create the boundaries that work for you, you know, especially people who are out there in communities and helping a lot of people and giving and giving. I think it just has to be in a way that, you know, you don't feel used and, and, and exploited. So that's important. Sometimes you have to communicate to people according to, to your needs but but not from a place of weakness and not from a place of anger and not from a place of resentment, from a place of inner confidence and wholesomeness. And really, you know, we always want to see the best in people and try to bring out the best in people. And I think when we operate from that space, people can respond. How do I, help, how do I set up healthy boundaries? You're not being specific. In what area? I mean... If you could be more specific, maybe I could say something. But the first and foremost thing is awareness of who you are and who you're not and try to emancipate ourselves from codependence. I cannot live other people's lives. I can't even live my children's lives. I can't. I can teach. I can educate. I can live by example. I can model. I can be calm. I can be loving. But you're not mine you're gods, and you have to live your life. I can't live your life for you. I can't. The more we can integrate that, the freer we can become. I want to also, this is a commercial for two classes I gave this week that I think you'll gain a lot. Sunday I gave a class entitled, When I Don't Need Anything, I Can Go Free. This was a class to, uh, to uh, where was it, Chicago, to the Chicago community, and it's on the yeshiva.net. It went up yesterday. It's on the homepage. When I'm free, I don't. when I don't need anything, I can go free. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but watch it. I think you'll gain from it. And the second class was Sunday morning. I did one with Young Israel of Century City, Los Angeles, Shabbos HaGadad, Russia. It was titled, entitled, um, The Double Dip of Jewish History. Why We Dip Twice. Really fascinating historical exposition. If you want interesting, inspiring material for the Seder while you're cleaning the kitchen and making Kashala Pesach cheesecake, this may be a, a nice uh, a nice addition. Okay, next question. Beautiful questions. Thank you. You know, I like when people ask questions because it means they were listening. Okay. Let me tell you how I reduce my anxiety at the Seder. I say, just do it. Drink four cups of wine. No grape juice. Nobody is anxious after so much wine. Either they're sleepy or they're happy. That must have been a man writing, no? Who do you think? What do you think? But yeah, I get it. I get it. You're saying just drink four cups of wine and follow the system of the sages. You don't have to come up with any other ideas. But I still think what the Baal Shem Tev said is very, very valuable. Next question. What were the names of the two students? Reb Nossin Leivenhendler and Reb Avram Belish Senitzer. Okay, practice. Reb Avram Belish Senitzer. He came from a town called Belish Senitz. The other one was Reb Nossin Leivenhendler. He was a merchant of Leivent, which is linen. I love how you explain the different vibes that we can have at the Seder. How can you make sure 
that you have that vibe when you are solely responsible for people's Seder. It's just you and your husband, no outside help because of locked borders. Everybody is on lockdown, but there's going to be lots of people. There is so much responsibility. The stress will be on. How can I tell myself all these beautiful ideas when the anxiety and the stress will be very much there? Wow, that is a good question. You know, it's all nice in theory, but the bottom line is, I'm going to get stressful, I'm going to get anxious, and how do I deal with it? First of all, thank you for this question. I think it's, uh, it's such an important question. Uh, the first thing is, I'm uh, I, 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 I'm not such. A, I'm not so good with practicalities. I have to be honest. I need. I still need help with that. So maybe one of the women here wants to answer this question because um, they'll give it like a very practical touch that I probably will not be able to do. It's just my own mitzrayim that I have to work on. You know, got to come down a little bit and bring it down. So I'm just, you know, I'm just thinking. I'm not saying anything authoritatively, but it's 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 the first question on the yeshiva.net on the class maybe. Some people could give some comments or you could say, write it on the chat and I'll say it. But I think a few things may be helpful. First of all, to know what to, to, know what to anticipate. Meaning, you know, know, you know what's happening. So like you see it coming, like you know this is what's going to happen so you could brace yourself. In other words, it's not something spontaneous, overwhelming that's going to startle you. You know, there's certain things you know that's coming and you're... Uh, and, 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 and you could prepare for it. Somebody, a therapist, told me that there's a couple that's going somewhere for the Seder and he does not get along with his in-laws, so he does not want to go, but his wife really wants to go. And the therapist said, make a checklist of everything your father-in-law might say to you that's going to really, really get you angry so that when he says it, you look at your wife and you just check it off the checklist. In other words, you're prepared for it. So, and he said it was the best Pesach ever because it was like, <laughs> it was like, here we go. In other words, instead of, oh, and he said this. They made a list of like 40 obnoxious comments that they expect. And when he's sitting at the table and his father-in-law says, so uh, he looks at his wife, they smile, check again. You know, if you could prepare yourself for what's coming and you see it coming, I think it can help, number one. Number two, you may have to say no. Maybe certain things you can do without, or maybe you need other people to help with certain things. So that's, I think, also helpful. Another element is, do you have tools to be able to breathe, to be able to be aware, to be able to calm down your nerves? You know, there's a lot of mindful mindfulness techniques, somatic therapy techniques, meditation techniques. Is this, the ability, is this something that you can do? When spaghetti, spaghetti hits the fan and you're feeling overwhelmed, do you have a way to go into your body, to observe what's happening, to respect it, to create space for it, not to judge it, and to be able to give yourself the tools, ground yourself. You know, there's different tools that they discuss, which you can look up or you can ask somebody, to really be able to sit in the moment, to be able to experience what you're experiencing, to be able to experience it, and to allow your body to really release it. And then you can operate from a place that is much more integrated. 
You don't want your prefrontal cortex overriding your amygdala. You don't want that. We're all good at that. Jews, Ashkenazic Jews are good at that. The prefrontal overrides the amygdala and our primal self goes into hiding. That's the afikaima. And then it comes out in weird ways. You want to work with your amygdala and bring it into the situation. Um, uh, it's extremely important, somebody says, to have the tools for all the physiological things that are reflexive. It may also help for you. You need rest. Maybe some exercise is good for you. Um, awareness is so important. So important to be prepared and also let go. Let go. And ask yourself if this will matter in 10 minutes or also in 10 years and in 10 months. I'm quoting one of the women here who wrote. In other words, some things you have to let go. It's not going to be perfect. Will the effects be in 10 years? Will this destroy your home? <laughs> what about 10 months? You know, If it's not affecting you in 10 months and in 10 years, we could let go some things. Remember, Rabbi Avram Seder had a little oil and some earthenware vessels. They were happy. They were in a good place. Don't get attached to what things have to look like. <laughs> let go of these things. Okay, this is a vote for a beautiful mimer. It's been the best preparation for Pesach for me. Helps keep everything in perspective. Helps me to prepare for and enter Yom Tif with the right headspace. That is beautiful, beautiful feedback. And I really appreciate it. You're a true kindred spirit and a great soul, as I wrote you by email. Your class for Chicago about not needing things and letting go was so helpful and meaningful. I want to really recommend it. Oh, Stephanie, Mazel Tov. I really want to recommend it to everybody because I think it's going to be very helpful. Okay, next question. Beautiful questions and comments. Thank you. Is any of this that you said practical? <laughs> I love that. I don't know what's not practical. This is all about practicalities. I think this is as practical as it gets. You know, we are so used to living a Judaism that is robotic. So it's like, you know, we say everything, we do everything, we know all them and hug him and the rituals and the halachas. But I don't think we're there anymore. I think we need experiential Judaism. I think we need experiential Pesachs. I, need, we, I think we need experiential davenings. I think we need experiential learning. We need experiential Yiddishkeit. We need experiential love. We need experience. I have to feel it in my body, in my gut, in my kishkas. You know, we're all living in a time of Geula. We're preparing for what do you think is going to happen when Mashiach comes? godliness is going to flow through the veins of our body. In other words, we're going to be able to be tuned in to the experience of the divine. And that's where we want to go to today. That's, that's, that's the place to be. These are the places you want to hang out. These are the places I want to hang out in. If I come to a class, you, there's people here on the Zoom who go to a lot of classes, educated women, uh, talented women, intellectually enriched women, teachers, mentors, principals, and on the, on the yeshiva.net, a lot of people here. You know, you all go to classes. There's classes that are just 
My wife sometimes tells me, I listened to this class and it was just dead. It was dead. The speaker could be screaming, but it's dead. It's dead. I said, what do you mean it's dead? He's a good speaker. No, the information was dead. You know what, you know what it means? Infor- the speaker was good and he meant well or she meant well, but it's just like you're repeating things that your mother said, your grandmother said. Don't repeat. Stop repeating. <laughs> Nothing wrong with repeating, but we have to live it. I have to experience it. I have to... Whenever you experience something, it's alive. When you repeat it, it's dead. We have to stop giving dead classes. Dead classes doesn't mean boring classes. Dead classes means their information is dead. It's not alive because it's not coming from depth. It's not coming from my, from my soul. It's not coming from my body. It's not coming from my energy. I'm just like repeating things. I'm like a robot. My computer can do it better. You know, my computer knows everything. Google does it much better. You have all the information. Don't just, information is important. I love information. You know, I give information. I try to give a lot of. I try to give a lot of information. I love information, but the information needs to be alive. So I think that's what you're struggling with. You're used to, like many of us are used to. We're used to a certain way of talking about things, and I think we need a much deeper level of experience. I think the children need it in schools today. I think. I think children in schools need to not only do the rituals and say what you have to do, but really be given the tools to experience it. I don't have the answers to all the questions. I don't have a clear curriculum of how to do it. But I think this is what we want to think about, giving children the tools to be able to experience their souls, their bodies, their minds, to experience God, to experience oneness. And give them the tools to be able to deal with their own moods and their own challenges and their own fears and their own insecurities. This is, this is so important. But I can't give anything to anybody if I don't, uh, if I don't go there. Okay, this has been great. I thank you very much for the opportunity and the experience. I wish you all a meaningful, a meaningful and happy and genuine and authentic festival of liberation. And uh, tomorrow morning, we're going to have a 7.30 morning class, continuing and concluding the mimer of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, but the secret of matzah, the concept of amuna, real amuna. Last night, by the way, we had a great session about dating. It was for Bachram, for boys and young men who are in the dating scene, before dating, in the middle of dating, trying to date, dealing with dates. It was really interesting. It went for like, I think, two and a half hours. I think from like 10 till 12.15 or 12.30. It was really great. Some amazing questions came up. I didn't expect the question. a lot of the questions. Really, really good questions. Genuine stuff. And uh, I know this is officially a woman's class, but I'm still going to recommend it. I'm still going to recommend it because I think it's good. I think it's good for people to hear what is going on, what boys are experiencing, you know. We're going to have one after Pesach for girls. We did one for parents, and last night we did for boys, so you can also watch it on the yeshiva.net. Okay, have a beautiful, beautiful Yom Tif. I send you all my light, all our light, and all the blessings. Let's keep it real. And uh, let's allow ourselves to experience real freedom by aligning ourselves with the true 
infinite vibe that vibrates through the core of our beings and exude it to all the people around us without judgment, but with deep, deep connection and deep, deep love. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.